Good evening, everyone. I'd like to start by singing a little song that my that I grew up with, which is a African American civil rights protest song that probably many of you know, and um, it goes like this. I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the water. I shall not be moved. And it was the image I have of the protests growing up in South Central Los Angeles with all these like-minded people locked in arms walking down the street chanting that song, you know, in protest of any number of things during that time. And I like to start with that because I want to talk a bit about equanimity but also social equanimity the idea that our practice belongs to the world, that our light belongs to the world, that this practice that we're doing here is about a culture of care and how we play a role in that. So um, it's useful to begin with a Buddhist context or some of the common stories that are in Buddhism and the one that I think really frames an understanding of this is the um, teaching around the, the two truth doctrines that speaks to ultimate reality and relative reality. So in ultimate, in, the, in relative reality, we're all somebodies, right? And in ultimate reality, we're nobodies, you know? In relative reality, I'm a woman, I'm an African-American, I'm a lesbian, I'm um, an elder, I'm a great-grandmother, I'm an artist, you know, I'm a lot of things. Some of the things people think I am, I'm not, but those are the ones, <laughs> those are the ones I'm claiming. <laughs> but in ultimate reality, I'm, I'm none of those things. I'm all those things that are not object-defined. So I'm putting this teaching very sim it's very, I'm using it very simply. So I'm none of these things in ultimate reality, yet I'm all of these things in relative reality. Relative reality being the realm of concepts and language and the ways we navigate and move through the world, all of our identities, the way we make sense and have connections near and far in the world. Relative reality. Ultimate reality is, is none of that. It's all of the space that's in between and through that. And these truths are, um, these two truths are, ex are, the are two expressions of one truth, really. Two expressions of one truth, two signs of one coin. And sometimes when we come into a spiritual practice, I mean, I often hear on retreats where people say, yeah, but in the real world, <laughs> right? 
you know, but when I leave here, you know, and we seek, you know, we've, we've all tasted <coughs> enough of the ultimate reality, even if it's just a little homeopathic drop, enough to find ourselves, make a way to be on retreat. Most spiritual practices are, are an aspiration towards this ultimate realm. And then we're in these bodies. We need these bodies to actually wake up to ultimate reality. We don't get to move and know liberation until we've come, it's come through the senses of this body. There's some beautiful teachings that um, help us understand this kind of um, twinship, if you will. T.S. Eliot has a quote that says, the external is outside of time, yet it is only in time that the fruit of spiritual liberation can manifest. So the eternal is outside of time, ultimate reality, but yet it is only in time that the fruit of spiritual liberation, relative reality, can be manifested. We don't get to escape the body and all the dukkha and all the other things that goes with it. Another quote by Rumi, he says, live in the nowhere that you come from even though you have an address here. <laughs> it's ultimate and relative reality. Martin Luther King says it this way, you must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. And Gloria Steinem says it this way, the truth will set you free, but it will first piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody felt a little bit of that this week? <laughs> so one way I kind of have a whiff of this through my own practice is when I've... Um, I got this image once on a long retreat of um, just seeing this, this vast space, this open vast space, and uh, there was all these cells floating around, you know, like these cellular cells uh, floating around, and every now and then there would be a coming together of some of them and I would have a strong experience of a memory or a thought, and then they'd dissolve, and then go back into this billions and billions of cells that are floating around, and then some configuration would come together again and then dissolve. Um, and what I realize is, is that, you know, this could just be the expression of us being this vast cellular system of many, many, Cell, all of us in cell suits, from different races and classes and colors and ages and models and, you know, all in this vast skinless body of awareness, bumping into each other, dissolving, being born again, you know, just this whole system, this whole nervous system actually. So it just occurred to me that, you know, what if that's really what we are? You know, the, when we look in the mirror, this thing we see is maybe not what we think it is. It's, it's just this kind of um, 
what's referred to as aggregates of experience in the teachings. And that image, for some reason, really convinced me that we're really not separate. You know, this sense of ultimate reality really speaks to a kind of undefined um, belonging, a field of awareness that we're all, um, uh, we all are in an ultimate sense. Yet we're in these cellular suits in, in, um, in uh, relative reality. Eckhart Tolle says it this way, he says, ultimately you are not a person, but a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. We're a focal point of the universe becoming conscious of itself. So when, when ultimate and relative reality is split off, like, I got to go on retreat to get the ultimate stuff, but then I'm in the real world when I go out into my life. When that gets split off, um, we can experience something um, referred to as spiritual bypass. You know, I was listening to a p talk by Larry Yang recently, a very um, important teacher for us in this tradition, and he was quoting um, John Willman who was a Buddhist psychologist in the early 80s, and he coined the term spiritual bypass. And this is what he says about it. He says, I coined the term to describe a process I saw happening in the Buddhist community that I was in and also in my life. Although most of us want sincerely, were sincerely trying to work on ourselves, I noticed a widespread tendency to use spiritual ideals and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. We often use the goal of awakening or liberation to realize that what I call premature transcendence. Um, trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced it and made peace with it. And then we tend to use the absolute truth to disparage and dismiss relative human needs, feelings, psychological problems, relational difficulties, and developmental deficits. I see this as an occupational hazard on the spiritual path in that spirituality doesn't involve going beyond our current situation, yet trying to move beyond our psychological and emotional issues by sidestepping them is dangerous. It leads to a conceptual one-sided spirituality in which one pole is elevated at the expense of its opposite. Absolute truth is favored over relative, over emptiness, over emptiness over form, transcendence over embodiment, detachment over feelings. Dot, uh, dot, 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 uh, dot speaks to the equanimity, the need for a sense of balance. 
And what this may mean to us as it relates to our practice is that we bring the full of our lives into the heart of our practice. We bring the full of our life experiences into the heart of our practice. We're not trying to get elsewhere. We're not trying to be someplace else, but dropping it right into the heart of our practice. It also means that we attend to the collective. We don't practice just for ourselves. Our practice belongs to the world because we're all in this um, cellular nervous system, this cellular skinless infinite body of awareness. What we do creates waves. What we do matters. And I, as I've met with so many of you this, 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 these last few days, you know, sometimes becoming conscious of that just sucks. It's just <laughs> not fun. <laughs> duka duka. Yeah, so it starts with our practice and then it radiates out. You know, it starts with our practice and it radiates out. So one of the uh, images I had that I was attracted to in Buddhism was, was, was the Buddha sitting like this. That's the iconology of <coughs> the serenity and this sense of peacefulness and stillness and presence, and even the statues seem to be radiant, you know, in their stoneness. And there was something about that that really had me believe uh, that this was possible to embody, that I could sit in my seat uh, somehow in this crazy world and find a way to um, not be so moved, like a tree planted by the water. So it's been a strong um, aspiration to see what it's like to embody the practice, to embody it in these ways, to um, cultivate uh, a kind of presence that allows us to, to see. And equanimity definition in Pali is, um, the word is upeka, upeka. And what some of the definitions is, is to look over to stand in the middle of all things. A sense of non-agitation, a sense of acceptance sitting in your seat, an evenness of mind. It's a peace, it's, it's about peace and ease and equipose. And I understand the common um, meaning in India is to see with patience, to see with patience. This is what we've been practicing. It's a wisdom practice. It's seen with understanding of, what, of the nature of what you're observing. I've heard equanimity referred to as the crown jewel <laughs> of the Buddhist teachings. It tends to be at the end of a number of the Buddhist lists. They kind of culminate in uh, equanimity. It's the ease that comes from understanding from the inside that there's two kinds of suffering. There's suffering that leads to more suffering and there's suffering that leads to an end of suffering. And this is what we know from the inside. It's not a concept. 
It's an embodied experience. It's why seeing a panoramic view of situations is the big picture. So it has a certain perspective of understanding what, what we're, we're looking at. There's a teaching um, uh, referenced, a sutta, the Vipalasa Sutta, that speaks to uh, the, the cycle of misperception or distortion, and which, hap- which gets in the way of kind of wise seeing. And it's a simple little mechanism in a way. It, it goes perceptions, we perceive things, and what we perceive actually has um, uh, uh, emotion and thoughts associated with it. So we have a perception, then we have some memory about it and some feeling about it that kind of goes together. And then when that view is reinforced, when that, when that perception is reinforced, it becomes a view and a belief. And, and it just loops around. It's fed around and around and around until it's interrupted. So a lot of how we view the world is centered around misperception or distortion of perception that needs to be checked out, needs to kind of be brought into some examination, some sense of um, questioning through uh, vipassana, ideally, which is the practice we're in. And there's another sutta um, that uh, we're... um, the Buddha is talking to his son, Raula, and explaining, uh, t- trying to give him a sense of what this thing, equanimity, is. You know, He's trying to explain what it is. The sutta's pretty elaborate. But there's a few images that um, my dear friend Gil was able to distill that I enjoy. And it's like uh, he's saying to Raula, I'm making up this story, but I could just see him sitting there saying, son, it's like this. Equanimity's like this. It's like a mountain. It's, it's like the earth. It's solid. It's not disturbed by the changing seasons. It's still. And it leads to grace and nobility. It's a stillness that leads to ease. And I could see Raul saying, really? And then <laughs> the Buddha says, it's like the ocean. Equanimity is like the ocean. It can hold all things. Images of, of, uh, or um, the image of uh, self, this, anyway, the ocean can hold all things. It's not disturbed by what's thrown in it. Now, I know there's some controversy on that. But, (laughs) you know, it's vast enough and big enough that you could put whole cities in it and and it's not disturbed. It's still water, you know, it can, you know, sink down. And Raul is saying, really? You know? (laughs) And he says, son, it's it's like a strong fire. You know, it can engulf, the fire can engulf anything, all things, and it's not disturbed by what you throw in it. That's the sense of equanimity. And, And it's like space. All things can be seen within space, appear and disappear, without the space being this, this disturbed. You see the sense of stain in the seat, the nature of equanimity through these examples. 
that the quality that we're actually cultivating in equanimity is this kind of inner stillness, like a tree planted by the water. I shall not be moved. And that's not about rigidity, it's about clarity that keeps the core stable and strong, the core of your practice. So there's a sense of conduct involved in this when you think about your practice and being in the world. This we that um, Gil spoke about when we opened yesterday, this sense of we, not my practice, your practice, but the we part really brings up the challenge around our conduct and what is wise conduct as we move through the world. Charles Johnson, who's a Buddhist scholar and philosopher, and the author of the book, Taming the Ox. He says, one way to understand right conduct is to see it as a calling to us as citizens to transcend the Dharma into specific actions of social responsibility. One way to understand right conduct is to see it as a calling to us as citizens to translate the Dharma and to specific actions of social responsibility. Our practice is not just our practice. And when we look at wise conduct, we can see the teachings of the Bodhisattva to be very helpful for us in this sense. The Bodhisattva is a person like you or me who commits themselves to the we, um, not the I and they live through principles so that they're not driven by desires and tossed around by everything that kind of comes up. The Bodhisattva cultivates the values of uh, bodhicitta, or the qualities of the heart. It's the wise heart that gets cultivated. Um, And they practice living this way through the paramis, ten paramis that are taught in the tradition that, that begin with generosity, ethical integrity or discipline, renunciation, or letting go because you know you really can't hold on to anything. <laughs> These are all practices. Wisdom, seeing the nature of things, energy or courage, patience, not to be confused with tolerance, sense of patience, which is more a call to presence. Truthfulness, resolve, kindness, and equanimity is on the list. It's the tenth of the pyramids. And again, these principles are more daily practices. Now, Bodhisattva takes vows, and these vows, um, there's many iterations of how they are, but they usually go something like this. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transcend them. Dharma teachings are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha's enlightenment 
the Buddha's enlightened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. So these vows acknowledge the interdependence, um, our relatedness, the sense of ultimate and relative reality. It's not like the Bodhisattva is going to go do this with every single person until all of everybody one-on-one -on -one is kind of <laughs> transformed. It's an understanding that our practice has impact on the collective, on the vast nervous system, on the vast body, skinless body of awareness. What we do has an, Im has an impact. Now when I look at our society, um, you know, noble figures that might embody this kind of, these kind of qualities wouldn't represent the current administration, but that's another issue. Uh, but they, we do have some examples in our social system that kind of can point to the ways these kind of values have been uh, embodied. The Lakota people of North America have a saying that's uh, all are related, all are relatives. And I think the... Um, Standing Rock um, was an indigenous and continues to be an indigenous-led resistance movement in North Dakota against the pipeline. The resistance movement embodied the value of all our relatives through the demonstration of interdependence, the water protectors of, of the land, the understanding of the role of compassion and non-harming non through that demonstration. And, um, and the care for all beings, not just um, the Lakota people or the people that arrived, um, the vast number of um, communities that came together in protest of that. That's an example of the embodiment of, of being uh, uh, of these principles. Martin Luther King, in his quote, says, In a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men, I forgave him for that, all men <laughs> are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. And then he ends that by saying, This is the interrelated structure of reality. This is the interrelated structure of reality. This is a real understanding of ultimate relative and the principles of interdependence, compassion, and non-harming. All are related is in that statement. Gandhi had a statement that he used. He says, we but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, the tendency in the world would also change. And this is what he then goes on to say. This is the divine mystery supreme. You know, it's kind of like some, it's, it's as if the, the, the embodiment of their own practice and being in the world understands this at a very deep level. The interrelated structure of reality the divine mystery supreme.
and Patrice Colliers, who is co-founder of Black Lives Matter. She says it this way. She says, this movement is not just about me. It's also, it also brings my ancestors and all people passionate about justice into the movement. This is healing work. You can't policy racism away. That's a more contemporary version of someone who can kind of, uh, a movement, these, all of these movements, whether it's the, the, the um, Standing Rock movement or, or the Civil Rights movement or Gandhi's effort or the Black Lives Matter or whether it's taking a knee and using your protests, you know, using your power and privilege to protest um, the injustice in the world. They're all... Um, attempting to create a sense of social balance. They're, they're all movements that address the social imbalance, the social imbalance of equanimity in our society, in our world. So what does this mean for us in terms of how we move in the world and how we contribute to um, well-being. Thomas, uh, Thomas Merton talks about imbalance, that we need to kind of take a look at our um, addiction to busyness as a way of kind of getting out of our own way. And he, t he says it this way, I found this very interesting. There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. <laughs> he says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our, world, our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. So it's, it's, we can have action and activism, and then we need to look at the, the heart quality, the chitta that we bring to it, and be sensitive to the seeds that we're planting when we are doing whatever we're doing of service in the world. I, I worked with a woman once um, who, uh, I do life coaching work, and she said that, you know, we've, she was a, a, a toxic waste um, environmental activist against some of the things that were being put in the earth, and she was really on fire about changing that dynamic. And um, and I said, so so tell me, you know, tell me what that's rooted in. Tell me what that's like. And she said a few things, and I was still feeling like the energy was way out here. And I said, what was it like for you at home? 
And the first word that popped out of her mouth was toxic. And this relationship of working out here for the toxic waste as opposed to dealing with the toxic waste at home had kind of been neglected. But it's projected. And so we can see the quality of what we bring to our actions when we are out in the world. A woman I met on retreat out at the Forest Refuge, a Chinese-American woman uh, who's the founder of Community Cooks. Her name is Victoria Ai. She's, she's, um, which started in Boston and now it's a national uh, organization that serves many marginalized people. And she gets cooks to cook the food and then deliver the food where it's needed. And she shared with me, she said, hunger couldn't wait for social justice. So she got her friends together to cook food and then it just turned into a whole thing. Hunger can't wait for social justice. Just to have a sense of how people are recognizing their interdependence, compassion, and non-harming ways. There's a lot of generosity in that. I worked with a guy who works at a Fortune 500 company, and um, he was so disturbed by um, what was happening uh, with Hurricane Irma and I told him to write it up for me because we had had this beautiful session. And this is what he wrote up. I think it's really helpful. He said, I was so disturbed by the distress call from Hurricane Irma that hit the Florida shores that on an impulse, I asked a crew of colleagues and interested team players to join me in renting a few trucks and driving to Florida to help families clean out their homes. The health risk for families who did not clean, clear out the debris was life-threatening, and many people were not receiving the immediate attention they needed. We landed in a flooded community of mostly African-American, low-income families, and began the task of clearing out debris that was quickly turning into toxic mold. One elderly black woman who happened to be a hoarder was resisting having any of her items thrown out, arguing that she just couldn't let it go. Her, house, her home was deeply flooded and packed from floor to ceiling with what appeared to be neatly organized and compacted trash. I, told the elderly, I took the to elderly woman outside and from, for the longest time explained to her that she would die if her home was not cleared out. The woman finally paused long enough to look into my eyes. Then she simply sobbed knowing that I was saying what I was saying was true and the crew finished the cleaning. In the middle of this horrific task, I received a call from the legal department of my company saying that my venture was putting the company in jeopardy and that I was to immediately return to which he replied, you can send a crew down here to show me how what I am doing is at risk and then advise me on how to keep all, us all safe. I hung up the phone and never heard another word from them. He, we did what we could do 
in five days, then returned home, and it turned out it wasn't an issue. There's somebody that's using their privilege for good and challenging the notion of what the parameters are of service. So it, it's, uh, it reminds me of what Cornel West says. Cornel West says, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. This is equanimity. This is the bodhisattva in contemporary form. You can also use your um, own talents and your own artistic expression as ways to contribute to a culture of care, a culture of balance, social equanimity. Another woman I met on retreat, a middle-aged woman from Spain, who for 25 years was a professional dancer, expressing, her, express, expressing through her body the stories people could not speak during the Spanish War. It's another offering to create balance, to honor what's forbidden, what's forgotten, what must always be remembered. Howard Thurman said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. This is, this is the relative reality. This is a relative realm. And how we shift the programming to create a sense of equanimity, of balance. Sometimes the work is closer in that we need to do. It's in our families. You know, um, some of the teachings of the Brahma Viharas is helpful for creating a culture of care, a sense of balance and equanimity within our families. A theme on this retreat that I've heard from many of the women, especially I've met with, is, is, is around our relationship with our, with our uh, kids, our grown kids on top of that. And I'm in the same soup. I've heard many stories of how, how challenging it is to kind of create a sense of um, loving um, uh, grace and equanimity in the relationships. It's a particular flavor of dukkha that um, is uh, worthy of attention. So some of the phrases from the equanimity from the um, equanimity uh, practices in the Brahma Vihara offers us, uh, um, says things like, I care for you, but I cannot make your choices. This sense of understanding equanimity. Um, um, your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not my wishes for you. Right? Um, whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. We forget this when we're moving in the world, you know, in the relative realm. It's important to remember. All beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. And I ran across this beautiful saying, I, I can't remember who said it or where I read it, but it goes like this. 
It is not our work to force someone's growth to our liking. It is the work of love to admire the beauty before you, to give people a sense of safety to unfold, to keep each other company when drowning in anguish until the wave can balance out and our feelings can once again live in us. So just think for a moment about what care looks like to you in the face of loved ones. What is the posture of grace that must be maintained given that you can't control all that, that happens, all that's unfolding? Earlier this year, I lost my oldest sister and I come from a family of eight and she was a difficult sister. She hadn't really spoken to me in a couple of decades. I, I can't even remember why. I'm not even sure she did. But um, she had pancreatic cancer, and I attempted to um, connect with her for several months after hearing about her diagnosis and trying to be with her. And she didn't want to connect. She didn't want to communicate. Um, and this was really difficult because I feel like I've been working my heart and I was ready, f you know, to, to just be present with her and come and be with her. And she didn't, she didn't want any of that. She wasn't even returning my calls. And um, so in March, I left her a phone message. And this is what I had to say to her. I said, hello, it's me again. I know this is a difficult time for you. I'm imagining that you are both strong and afraid and that you are reflecting on your life, hopefully in kind ways. I want you to know that I love you and I have a request. I want you to forgive me. I'm not sure what I did for you to shut me out of your life for the past two decades, but it must have been hurtful and necessary, and I'm deeply sorry. My prayer is that we somehow rise above it. I'd like for us to bury this legacy that we inherited from mom of never forgiving. It's such a weight that I'm sure your heart can do without right now. So please forgive me. You don't have to call me back. I will know if you forgive me, and you will know too. Most importantly, I love you. And she didn't call me back. She called, a f she died a few weeks later. And um, I'm so glad I left her that message because it was a certain freeing for both of us. And I think there's a bit of that kind of work that we're all challenged with in our families, in our immediate circles, with our loved ones. You know, sometimes we could look at how we need to create balance in the world, but I think it starts really close in, really with the loves that we just can't toss out, even though they don't speak to you for two decades. And when I went home for her celebration of life, 
It was her children that could snuggle up and allow me to love them up in ways that she couldn't allow it. So sometimes we skip a generation. I don't know why, but uh, it was a beautiful thing to have them, to be able to hold them. And because my sister just didn't have that capacity to show her heart, but I knew it was there. So it was sometimes that's where we have to hang out in our families with care, recognizing that we have impact. Thomas Merton um, says, compassion is the keen awareness of the interdependence of all things. It's kind of like when we get that we're interdependent, that what we do creates waves, it makes a difference, it, it, we're, we're, we're all related. Uh, then we start changing up how we move in the world. So you don't have to be a bodhisattva. You don't have to take those vows if you don't like. But it is useful to keep in mind that we are interdependent. Um, we're part of a cellular system, a, a, a one big heart, one big nervous system. We're all a part of what we do matter. It's important to keep in mind that compassion is a weapon of mass healing. It has a radiance. We're cultivating that through this practice. And that the mind free of hatred supports safety for all of us. Really putting ourselves in check in terms of how we, our attitudes and our views and when we get in lockdown mode about a certain view, anytime we fixate and lock in, something's being locked out. And this is a practice. We don't just automatically open our hearts, but in this practice we're looking at why they tend to shut down and what's involved in, in lightening up. And we could go back to the Buddha talking to Raula and as we walk through life and we can ask, okay, in this situation, do I need to call up the image of the mountain and to be more still in this situation? Or do I need to call up a fierce fire so that I can, that, so that I can tell a fierce truth? Or do I need to open this of the ocean so that I can rest and allow things to kind of come and swim? Or do I need to be more spacious in my view and open a little wider? I was on a flight back from South Africa. It was a long flight and I couldn't wait to get on the plane and push that button and lean back in the seat, right? So I did that, it was a full flight. <coughs> Everybody's tired. We're up in the air, push the button. And this guy behind me, this white guy, sitting right behind me, when I pushed my seat back, he started slamming his tray up and down. I mean, very obviously slamming it up and down. 
And I just thought he was making an adjustment. And then it just didn't stop for a while. And so I said, um, I turned around and I said, would you, would you be willing to not put your tray up and down? Because it's creating a little, it's kind of hard for me to relax in his chair. And he literally screamed at me and said, if you hadn't leaned your, your chair back, this wouldn't be happening. And before I knew it, I had, my mind had flipped into, um, um, I had gone all the way back to South Central Watts, Los Angeles, where I was raised. <coughs> and I, um, this all happens, like I tell you, this is a 90-minute scene, right? So when he yelled at me on the plane, the whole, it, 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 in my mind, it seemed like the whole plane got silent. All of a sudden, the white women on the plane were wondering, can we open the window and get some air in here? <laughs> the babies started crying. The black men started unbuckling their seat belts. I'm making this all up, right? But it, it was like a moment. You know, the black women were sitting there rolling their head at me as if to say, I know you're not going to let him get away with that, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, and the, all of a sudden, the, all of the stewardess went AWOL. It's like, well, where's the, you know? And so... Um, all of this in 90 seconds. My mind just went into amazing, you know. I'm thinking, how dare you? Who are you? I mean, how dare you do this in public even? You know, just all of the mental states came. And even with all of that, um, what I also saw is how the whole system on the plane was impacted by that incident, not just me. So... Uh, and I had some impact, but it was, you know, I'm thinking, okay, we're 3,500 feet up in the air, 1,000 feet up in the air. This is a long flight. I'm really short. I don't have to lean my, lean my seat back. So within that 90 seconds, I pushed the button and pulled my seat up. The whole system was able to relax. It wasn't a big upset other than my own nervous system having to find <laughs> its landing, which it did in time. And a couple hours later, when I got up to walk around a little bit, I saw the guy sitting behind me more clearly, and he looked like he might have been seven feet tall. And his knees literally went up to the back of my seat. He was, it was really a hardship for him, for, this, for, for my seat to be leaned back. It wasn't something I had a view of from where I was sitting. And he was asleep in his, in his chair, and I looked at his face, and I could see that he'd probably been teased and bullied, <laughs> you know. And that attitude didn't help, I'm sure. You know, but, <laughs> you know, I saw him, you know, this innocence and this kind of, this, his, you know, he, he didn't handle the situation the way I would have wanted, but um, I could see more than the story I had about it. And pushing the button to raise the seat up was the right thing to do. It wasn't that how I felt about it wasn't right too, but it wasn't the most important thing to do for a culture of care, for the whole plane to kind of settle and for us to, to move on. And we're making these kind of choices all the time. I call it, do you bid or do you pass? You know, and when you do bid, when you do choose to respond, can you remember that you're planting seeds? You're planting seeds because we make waves. You know? So that's, um, that's just an example of 
how we can remember our practice uh, and that it wasn't pleasant and it wasn't just a kumbaya moment. It was a choice. It was a choice to be in the practice. So I'd like to just um, leave you with a little bit of practice, a little equanimity practice, and I invite you to just kind of close your eyes and settle in a bit. Equanimity and invites us to be aware and with balance and wise effort. One of the teachings talks about a violin, the, the strings. If it's too tight, the sound is not going to be experienced well. And if it's too loose, the same thing happens. So there's, we're really looking at that balance that equipose, that balance of care. And just taking a moment to check in to see if you can feel a sense of balance inside the body. See if you can establish some sense of that, whether it's an even weight on your sits bones or placement of your hands. And taking your time to notice the level of effort that might be going on. Just relax whatever effort is happening. Sense of softening around it. Taking your time to receive these phrases I will offer. Let's let yourself be touched by them. May I see the world with quiet eyes. May I offer my care without hesitation, knowing I may be met with gratitude, anger, or resistance. May I remain at ease and soften fixation. 
May I offer care, knowing I can't control the course of life, suffering, or death. May I see my limits with compassion, just as I see the limits of others. I care for you. I care for all beings, but my way is not the only way. All beings have their own journey and I have mine. May I be free from preferences and prejudice May I see the world with quiet eyes. 